Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine, so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. Today, our conversation will focus on adding NPPs, or non-physician practitioners, to a medical practice and how to make them cost-effective and profitable. The MGMA says that the medical practices with more advanced practice practitioners, nurse practitioners, and other non-physician providers are more profitable and productive according to a new report they published. Physician-owned practices with more non-physician providers earned over $100,000 more in net income, and the difference was just astounding. So diving into this subject with me today is fellow NSCHBC member Adam Middleton. Adam is the founder and president of Healthcare Advisory Network out of Dayton, Ohio. Adam works for a healthcare works as a healthcare business consultant for hospitals, physician groups, and healthcare related entities. Since 2008, Adam has consultant with consulted with physician practices, post acute providers, and hospitals with particular focus on physician compensation, fair market value, management, operations, finance, and strategic planning. Adam is a current member of the NSCHBC and MGMA. He is a member of the Ohio Hospital Association Legislative Committee, the Greater Dayton. Area Hospital Association Disaster Committee, the Dayton Regional EMS Council, and the Dayton Area Chamber of Commerce as an ambassador and legislative committee member. So, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Terry. I appreciate it. We are really happy to have you today. I love this topic because there's always a question in so many practices, um, whether it be a single provider or a multiple group provider, should we hire a mid-level? And actually, I have a a big medical group, a a client out of San Diego, and they don't like that term mid-level. They're like, no, we call them APPs or advanced practice providers and other other practices call them NPPs, non-physician practitioners. So you know, it's funny how it's, it's, it reminds me of when I was a kid that if you're in California, you go to the beach. If you're in Oregon, you go to the coast. And if you're in New Jersey, you go to the shore. <laughs> so it's all the same thing. But um, question to you as we get started, you know, I mentioned that statistic of profitability at the beginning. And what are your thoughts on, you know, hiring these non-physician providers? I guess that's the way to put it. Um, and is it for every specialty, every size practice? Yeah, I can't speak for every specialty and every practice that's out there, but from an overall view, um, utilizing a, an NPP you know, inside the practice is most often um, very, very good from a profitability standpoint, but also from a workflow and just a, a, an, an area for the physician to be able to have, you know, somebody to assist from a backup um, in particular. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, several different of our clients, cardiology, family practice, pain, and nephro. You know, we've seen some very, very positive results from the from the MPP. Um, if you'd like, I can give you some examples of, of those in those practices. Actually, I would love to hear that. I know you and I both work in some specialty practices. I think you're focused on, like me, cardiology, family practice, and then also some um, surgical specialties. But yeah, please, please elaborate. Sure. Um, I've got a, a couple examples. Uh, one of them, I'm working with a pain medicine physician practice right now, and they utilize the nurse practitioners in a couple of different ways. And 
the main area that they're utilizing is really kind of on that case management, the access uh, in a pain medicine clinic. Uh, obviously, you've got a lot of people that are coming through on a regular basis. Uh, you've got a workflow that needs to be kind of very fine-tuned when it comes to being able to see those patients. And if they're on pain pumps, they need to be able to be seen at a regular basis. The nurse practitioner is the one that is filling those pain pumps, you know, for those for the patients and also seeing a lot of the the patients from a from a care management, case management perspective. What that does is that really frees up those pain medicine physicians to do the higher level, to be able to see those complex patients, to be able to have the time to really concentrate on those, and also to spend much more time from a procedural perspective, you know, when it comes to either inserting pumps or doing other high-level uh, procedures in their, in their ASC. So the nurse practitioner has become a very valuable asset for those particular practices. And typically, you'll have two or three nurse practitioners per per physician in those practices. Um, also another group, different specialty that I'm working with, they're in nephrology and they're utilizing their, their NPPs in a in kind of a different way. They, they have them in the traditional office setting where they are seeing their patients, they help with access. You know, they're working with uh, high blood pressure patients, they're working with their kidney patients, they're doing a lot of different things that you would kind of expect in that traditional setting. But what they've also now started to utilize their nurse practitioners on is really to effectively start to get themselves ready for some of the mandatory value-based payments and bundles that are coming out in the nephrology world. Uh, so they have actually set up their nurse practitioners to do the education component for CKD. Uh, what that is, is uh, every CKD patient in stage four or five, so you get the more serious CKD patients, um, they're eligible for up to six educational visits uh, per lifetime. Um, so this group, um, they've utilized their nurse practitioners to actually build an educational curriculum to see those patients. They come in, typically it's about a 45 minute up to an hour visit um, to see the patients underneath that educational program and help those patients understand everything from the nutrition to the to the medications that they're going to be on, you know, are they heading towards dialysis? If so, are they going to have, you know, can they do, uh, can do at home? Can, are they going to be in the clinic? So really helping those patients understand, you know, what, uh, what they're facing and it's be, they're, they're new into the program, but, um, you know, a few months in they're, they're finding it very successful uh, from a patient engagement satisfaction and just being able to get those patients prepared. Um, they're also utilizing their nurse practitioners from an access perspective. Uh, this practice, uh, they they have they've got two large practices in our area, and one of the area, one of the outlying areas is very difficult to get in for a nephro consult. So what they've done is they utilize a nurse practitioner via telepresence to be able to see a patient at a primary care physician's office. So the patient actually shows up at the at the rural office. Um, can see the nurse via telepresence, telehealth type of device. And what this allows for is much quicker access uh, into that practice. So they can kind of evaluate, see that patient, know, really understand if that patient does need to come in and see a physician, um, and they can get them in weeks before uh, what they typically could if they're trying just to uh, see that patient in that particular rural area. So it's uh, going to be a great opportunity to provide access to those primary care patients.
You know, one thing you were mentioning, and I I really wanted to also just to uh, kind of clarify for our listeners, one of the things that I do in my background is I'm an external consultant for the American Academy of Family uh, Providers and um, Physicians, I should say. They hate that word provider. I always say that and they get, they always get on me about that. Um, But they prefer (laughs) the physician. I know everybody's quirky about what they like. But one of the things that came up recently is about these group counseling sessions and, you know, really uh, bringing together access for patients and things that they need, not just in person, but um, some things that they need just to make them feel comfortable in that education. And you brought up a really good point. So for our listeners, uh, just so you know, that the CKD is chronic kidney disease. And also we have patients that have diabetic diabetes and there's diabetic counseling, there's obesity counseling. One of the things when you look at this from a big picture, just be clear, and we don't want to get all, you know, webinar education on you, but we just want to make sure you realize that when you get into the the group setting and some of these conversations and, and adding the mid-level providers, make sure you do your due diligence with Medicare and Medicaid and your payers because they only cover certain diagnoses and CKD is one of them. Diabetes is another one um, on, on certain situations. Um, obesity counseling is another one. Um, also mental health and behavioral health. And I know uh, Adam has some, in, some insight on that as well as another one, but I'm getting all kinds of requests saying, Terry, how can I charge to, you know, have a bunch of patients in a room and a group setting to show them how to use a medicine ball when they exercise that is not covered. <laughs> so there are things that basically you have to be careful where you could just hand them a brochure and say, you know, I'll talk to you next week that, we're always looking for medically indicated, medically necessary, and the condition prompts what you can do. And I I just wanted to put that out there, Adam, because I'm sure you see that as well, where as soon as you open the door to group counseling and things, and and obviously, you know, chronic kidney disease and diabetes, that's a, a really big deal. But when it's lifestyle medicine, we have to really kind of give them uh, some insight as to be careful with that. Don't you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And I think the other area that you need to you know, be, be wary of when you are trying to build those programs, it's who is that APP or NPP? What type of provider are they? Because um, you have to be pretty specific. Even in the, you know, the chronic kidney disease education, the nurse practitioner, PA, and a dietitian, they can be involved while a pharmacist can't. So you've got to be careful as to to make sure that you're lining up the the correct medical diagnosis with the correct provider um, just to make sure that you are following all the guidelines and, you know, something's not going to come back to bite you later. That's true. And, you know, as somebody who audits for Medicare and audits for different payers, this has been a big issue, especially with, uh, especially with telemedicine and uh, just making sure that you follow the rules. We had, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday that misinterpreted the telehealth rules for the last year and has been billing, for example, audio only under office visits for a Medicare. I was like, oh boy. So they're going to have to self-report and, and send some money back. So, but when we get back to, to the topic, as far as the NPPs, they're, they're utilized in such a way that really also can free up the physician for those new encounters for, I don't want to say that there's, you know, because an NPP can do everything that a physician can from basically from an administrative standpoint, when you're just talking about billing, coding and so forth. But like you said, there are certain times when the physicians are step in versus NPP. And this is a great way to um, really get your non-physician providers involved in a way that engages patients for what we leave for the physician. Can you uh, comment on the, the behavioral health 
um, edition. So I think that's that's really big, especially because I think when we get back to post-PHE, post-pandemic, I really believe that that's going to be one of the areas where we're going to stick with telehealth. Yeah, I would um, concur. And, and actually, it was long before long before the pandemic, uh, nurse practitioners and, and PAs, especially trained in behavioral health, were utilizing telehealth to see patients. Um, we've got um, you know, several different clients that we've worked with that utilize a a nurse practitioner or a PA that is specially trained to see those patients um, in a, whether it's in an FQHC type of environment um, or also in a primary care environment. Uh, one group that we work with currently, it's a primary care, it's a small primary care, but they have a, a very high um, Medicaid population and the Medicaid population that we're dealing with, they have high mental health needs when it comes to um, you know, it's kind of that integrated care between behavioral health and also um, their primary care health. So what we what we did, what we established is we we actually inside of the primary care office, we we have the patient show up for their behavioral health visits. Uh, the patient is there. We utilize a nurse practitioner who is off-site. Um, we, we use a third-party company with with this where they're off-site, but they bill underneath R10. Uh, they're seeing those patients there because the nurse practitioners and physicians that are that are in the office they don't do behavioral health all day long. They do primary care. Um, so we have the specialists come in seeing them. And that is a model that you know, I'm seeing in, in the Midwest, and I'm sure it's across the, across the nation too, uh, with the very difficult uh, recruitment and trying to find enough uh, behavioral health specialists, whether it's a psychiatrist, psychologist, nurse practitioner, um, they're, they're hard to come by. Um, so the utilization of telehealth and being able to see those patients, uh, it's not going to go away. It's just going to continue to increase. I agree. And I, I truly believe that if for it to be successful, not just do we have to expand on the, the internet, the bandwidth, I mean, ba- bandwidth, that's that's going to be the biggest thing, but also our mid-levels, the, the you know, our nurse practitioners, PAs, clinical nurse specialists, um, you know, like Adam said, this is going to be, you know, just such a big thing. And as we ease out of the public health emergency, um, that some of those flexibilities will continue. Not all, everybody's kind of wondering what's going to happen and we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, but I think that using our, our mid-level providers in this sense is, is really going to be make for some profitability that wasn't there before. But, you know, putting the profitability aside, we know that's important and obviously you can't survive without it. You know, when you're looking at um, just a lot of times now the payers are looking to figure out, are the patients happy? And one of the biggest things that they do on their surveys to decide if they're going to continue with physicians uh, in that particular contract is they will pull patients and say, what are your top five reasons you go to this practice? And it's interesting that I've read some of these and number seven is about the physician, the top five, or do we have access? Is parking good? Do they offer telehealth? You know, things that that our mid-levels can really uh, help with. And and it's just amazing to me what patients want versus what the perception may be as far as what's out there. But I agree with you. The access issue, that is huge when it comes to utilizing our nurse practitioners and PAs. Now, you you mentioned something before about PharmD, and um, I just want to make sure I'm clear as well. That's using a pharmacist and 
as far as part of your practice, I'm, I'm sure as far as some of that input. And I just want to clear up just before you, you, I ask you a question on this, just so everybody knows pharmacists do not have part B options. Okay. They, they don't have, they can't bill an E&M service under a part B. There is an exception right now, sort of, it's a weird exception. Um, when they're uh, counseling for COVID uh, testing, and vaccine, they can under a physician's supervision get a nurse visit, but again, the doctor still has to um, bill it, and then they can give them a fee. But can you expand on on what your thoughts are as far as using uh, PharmD in in that engagement? Because that would actually be considered a non physician provider, kind of. But I don't want to disrespect the the PharmD specialty. Yeah, and you do have to be very careful as to how you utilize the PharmD from from that perspective. Uh, but what what I'm seeing, and it's it's being utilized in, in especially with primary care and some of the FQHCs and and other practices that are doing integrative medicine, is that the pharmacist is actually brought into a practice either as a contractor or an employee of the practice, and it depends on how you know obviously how big the practice is and, and what their end goals are for utilizing the PharmD. But they work collaboratively with either the physician or the nurse practitioner or PA with those complex polypharm patients. Um, so what that allows for is a physician may, may go in, they may see the patient, do history, physical, kind of looking to see what, what's occurring with that patient, both in a, acute and or chronic. Um, but then the pharmacist comes in right after and, and educates the patient, works with them, looks at the medications that are currently being prescribed. Um, it frees that physician or the nurse practitioner up from that conversation. Um, the conversation is now being handled by a pharmacist that, you know, this is what they do for a living. They understand the medication. Um, they understand them at a different level, even than a, than a physician. And most physicians, you know, will admit that, that they've got, they've got their knowledge base that goes so far, but then they depend upon the pharmacist to be able to kind of come in and, and work with them with that. So uh, you'll see this model, um, especially in like primary care first models that are, that are coming CPC plus patient center medical home type of models. Those are areas where that pharmacist really gets integrated into the workflow and into the system. Uh, what we're also seeing with some practices and one of my clients, they utilize pharmacists actually to oversee their annual wellness visits and their chronic care management. Um, they love the model because most of the questions that are occurring with the Medicare population and those chronic patients uh, tend to revolve around their medication use, whether they're utilizing you know, 20 different medications, uh, which does happen uh, more often than people want to admit, um, or it's a, which one of those could be modified, what they could be looked at. So the, the pharmacist is you know, helping identify the areas that could be changed, consulting then back with the physician um, through that chronic, through either CCM um, or through the annual wellness visit. So it's, a, it's an interesting model on how they're working that. Um, but it's it's uh, paying dividends to the practice and assisting them getting um, more people into the annual wellness visits because, as you just said, it engages the patient. They they enjoy having that conversation, um, and they're working with a, a highly trained professional in that situation. Right, and I think it's important also for our listeners to to realize. Remember, annual wellness visits. That's not a full and complete 
preventative exam that that's more of a checklist and it's prevention. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's something that everybody should be doing, you know, if you have that opportunity from a primary care perspective on the uh, care management side, I agree. I think it's, it's very important to have your team of your clinicians um, and to include a pharmacist for sure. And, and remember what Adam said, this is collaborative. This is not any one practitioner, especially when we get into care management uh, that just takes over. It's a collaborative effort. And when you have uh, those kinds of collaborations with the mid-levels, the PharmD, and the physician too. Obviously, the physician has to be brought into it. Uh, the, it's amazing what it does for patients. And also realize that there are different rules for FHQC, FQHCs and then mm -hmm. also um, just, I hate to say, just regular medical practice, but you know what I mean when I, when I mention that. So a question that uh, comes up quite a bit and, the, and I always, I say this to prep, uh, a lot of my practices, a lot of my clients, and they, they look at me like, we didn't even think of that. And it kind of amuses me a little bit. One of the things for basically improving patient care and accessibility are practice hours. I noticed that so many practices are eight to five and, you know, most people work eight to five. Think about if you actually opened your practice at 630 in the morning, or if you let it, you know, one or two nights a week, let it stay open until 8 p.m., not being in urgent care, but so people can actually go to the doctor before they go to work now that the country is starting to open up and utilizing your mid-levels for that. Um, you know, that access, and again, I know that you and I have talked about the balancing act for that for profitability. What are your thoughts on that? Just trying to at least give patients more options when it comes to availability. I think that, you know, the more options a patient has, uh, it's, it's better for the patient and they're going to be, they're going to be a happier patient. I, I know that years ago I went to a dermatologist and he started his, he started at 5 a.m. in the morning. I was always that guy. Um, so, you know, I wanted to get there, get it done, move on. Um, so you, the, the ability to expand those hours can be very important. Um, it, you do, of course, you have to balance that with, you know, the, the, the overall overhead of the practice. You know, how do you, so you've got to calculate, you know, when you're, when you're running those numbers to, to build out the, that performa, a um, couple things you've got to be very aware of when you're utilizing an NPP is that, you know, you're, if the physician's not on site, then you're going to have to be cautious that you can't use incident two. So you may be getting a 15% or so haircut um, on your reimbursement. You also have to make sure that you've got um, a nice tracking mechanism to make sure that somehow or another, if if the nurse practitioner is working six to eight, that and, but at eight o'clock the doc comes in, now you want to bill incident two. Make sure that whatever was billed and coded, you know, between six and eight. Um, is coded correctly. So you don't have an incident two problem come back and get you later. Um, those aren't comfortable. I've, I've had to go through those with a couple practices and, you know, it, it wasn't anything that, that they did on purpose, but it still was wrong. Um, so you've got to be careful there. And then, of course, you also have to balance, you know, what other staffing and support and supplies are going to be needed for that time frame. Um, but the overall is that if, if you've got access problems already. So if patients are having to wait, um, they can't get in, they, increasing those hours, it might even be only till 7 p.m. Uh, or even 6.30, but you might be able to get somebody in after work, take care of an acute issue, uh, keep them from having to go to an urgent care or worse, having to go to an ER for something that could be handled at the primary care office and, you know, costing them $75 or $150 for a deductible that didn't even need to occur. So again, it makes the patients happy.
Right. And I think that also it helps with some of the MIPS and MACRA because they look at your extended hours as one of the quality measures. The other thing, too, mm -hmm. is, you know, think about your staff. You've got staff members that have small kids that don't want to miss a soccer game, that all this. So this isn't to say that your staff is working now eight to eight. This is saying that you've got flex hours for your staff. So if you have staff members that you know, ask them, I'm sure there's a lot of staff members that would love to work 5 a.m. and get off at one o'clock in the afternoon or vice versa, not come in till noon and, and work till, you know, 830 or nine. So um, you talk to your staff as well, you know, for our listeners, because that's a, a really big deal. And you'd be surprised how many would be like, you know what, I love having my morning on Thursday morning where I can get, you know, my, my own stuff done. So uh, I think it, it really makes a difference in a practice when you have some options like that. One thing you brought up that I wanted to ask you. So let's say you're a single provider and you're trying to figure out, should you hire another doctor because your volume's uh, pretty high or should you bring in a nurse practitioner or PA? What would you direct them to do? And let's just put it out there. Let's say it's a just a primary care physician. It's not a specialty physician. Every circumstance is going to be a little different, but I would more than likely go the NPP route first. Um, just from a just from a matter of expense and risk, um, you know, recruiting in a physician into the practice is an expensive ordeal, and you you are going to have a lot more risk um, for that while you ramp that that particular uh, physician up. Um, if if you have an opportunity to frankly bring in that that NPP, um, utilize them and kind of offload a lot of the administrative and other burdens such as prescription refills and, uh, you know, seeing patients for kind of those chronic issues, um, you're going to be able to relieve a lot of your stress and a lot of your time at a lower cost and still have very high quality and, and good patient satisfaction. Right. And one thing also to, to our listeners, I wanted to just comment on, there is a different state to state between what the uh, scope of licensure and practice can be for an NP versus a PA. So make sure you're looking at your state, uh, you know, figure out what the nursing board says, figure out what the APA says, but be careful because I've noticed that some practices have hired a PA thinking that they have the same, um, I guess, um, op options as a nurse practitioner and they don't. Uh, so a lot of states want the physician in practice or in clinic the whole time they're seen as a supervisory uh, situation and capacity. And then uh, the NP, they can basically hang a shingle out on a door in most states and work independently. So make sure you do know the difference between your uh, NPPs because there there is a different state to state. Uh, and it's they're trying to make it a little bit more st streamlined, but not all PAs have the master's and the in the clinical uh, two years in a particular uh, specialty and the NPs do. So it's, it's also an education thing. So just keep that in mind because that could, that could you know, basically make a decision one way or another of where you want to go with that. And then speaking of that, uh, or kind of going in that direction, I noticed that there's a lot of practices that don't know whether to hire at mid-level as a, uh, an employee or an independent contractor. And we know that the just the general rules are if you tell somebody they have to be there at a certain time, you tell them what their job is, and it's not more of a project, that's more of an employee, correct? Yes, I'm not a CPA, and we've got plenty of them in our society. We do, right? <laughs> yes. If I were wrong. Um, but uh, my advice to clients is that you do need to bring as an employee, yes. um, just from just from that fact. You're, you're telling them when to be there and what to do. Uh, they're really not independent. Um, if 
you know, if they are shingle out, they do have full independence, there could be an argument for it. But uh, we recently, one of my practices, they, they actually go through a, uh, an employment agency, you know, uh, PESO, um, to do all their payroll and everything else along that line. When we signed up with the PESO, they recommended that everyone flip from 1099 to employee. So uh, we went with their advice. Now that's a, that's a great idea. And just to clarify, Adam, what, what does the PESO acronym stand for? I'm sorry, it's a professional employment service organization. So they do HR payroll. Uh, they, they basically handle those back office functions that um, a lot of practices don't like to worry about. Yes, we, I have one myself. So I, I'm just like, okay, let me just, let me just me go too. with this. Yeah, I love those. <laughs> now, one thing, and this is kind of a kind of two things, I guess, that I'm kind of putting in there as far as productivity and setting goals, but also tracking productivity. I have a couple of practices, mostly it seems like cardiology and GI, that do employ NPs and um, they they employ them, and then obviously if they're billing incident too, it goes under the physician. But I've said, well, let's run just the information and just the encounters that your NP has done. Let me look at some profitability issues. And they're like, well, we don't track it. I was like, oh boy. So it looks like the physician is seeing 50 patients a day instead of when I actually shadowed what happened, the doctor was only seeing 12 and the nurse practitioner was seeing the rest. And so what, is, what are your comments on that as far as tracking so that you can you can see your profit margin. They should be tracked. And typically most EMRs, you're going to be able to, to pull those reports and be able to isolate those those out. Um, so yeah, it, it, it makes, you know, from a business perspective, it makes full sense to be able to track what they're doing, when they're doing it, you know, be able to also, um, you know, need to look not just on their productivity, but also what are their quality metrics? What are their standards that, that, that you as a practice want to make sure that they're, that they're doing? Um, especially if you start to get, you know, multiple nurse practitioners uh, underneath you, you'll, you want to know, you know, what, what is, what's going on inside the office and what are kind of the best practices, you know, who are, who are the ones that are performing well and utilize that to leverage your others to help train, to educate, to, you know, make the practice overall a better practice. I agree. And also remember, you can go to your hospitals and get um, that, them credentialed with the hospital. You can get privileges for them, even if it's just, um, you know, provisional. But when you get a patient that, you know, needs to be seen at one o'clock in the morning, sending your nurse practitioner over is, is fine in most hospitals. So it, you need to utilize them from and the doctors that are listening to the, our podcast. You need to lose, utilize them where it's advantageous for your life as well. So not just your practice, but your life as well. It's, it's not just to be profitability, to open up access and all that for your patients, but also what does it do is for your quality of life as well to bring in that kind of provider. I think it's, it's really important um, to, to look at that from, from a big picture perspective. So in closing, another piece of critical, you know, information is how the physicians and non-physician practitioners work together, making sure that it's successful and we want to obviously maximize revenues, highest quality of patient care, but working together is important. So did you have any last, you know, in, insight on that, Adam, as we close out for today? I think the biggest thing is, is really to look at how often are you having collaborative conversations, making sure that you are circling back, you know, with 
with each other on a frequent basis. Uh, we all get busy in the practices, and um, you, know, you can you kind of go off kind of on your own on your own silo. So you got to make sure that you've got some regular touch base meetings that are going on. Especially if you're in a larger integrated practice, you need to make sure that you're having those conversations with your pharmacists, with your nurse practitioners, PAs, those other providers that are there, um, to make sure that from a patient perspective, everybody is aligned. You know, on the clinical side, on the delivery side, on the accessibility all of the different issues that, that um, can make or, make, make or break a practice, you want to make sure that you are having you know, regular conversations. And I think probably the last thing is that physicians, um, the more education that you provide to the nurse practitioners, the better. So if you're their collaborating physician, it's not just a matter of looking at their charts and, you know, okay, I've, you know, I've reviewed their 15 charts, great, I'm a collaborator, check the box work with them, talk to them about why they're doing things, look at their notes, um, continue the educational piece. I know that the nurse practitioners I work with, they absolutely love it when the physician takes a little bit of time and says, hey, this is this is what you're doing right. This is what I can see from an improvement perspective. Or when you've got this difficult case, instead of just bumping it out to the next higher up specialist, let's talk about it. Let's see if we can manage that patient here in the practice. If not, sure, we'll move them on to whatever ology that they need to be moved on to. Um, but let's let's work with that patient and let's you know work internally to make sure that you've got um, you know, the best possible outcome for the patient inside your walls. I agree. And, and, you know, it really is a partnership, which leads me to my last comment on this. One of the things, again, as, as an auditor, not just for payers, but also for physician practices and, and facilities, make sure that you also include them in your auditing process. When you do an E&M audit, which is evaluation management codes for your f- providers, that means all the providers that are reporting these services, which includes your mid-levels, you need to know how they're doing as well. And I see a lot of practices that do not include them because they feel that at some level they're a lower level provider. They're billing out the same levels as your physicians are. So include them in in that uh, work and and really looking at um, their benchmarks and and how they're doing. Because again, like Adam said, education, and you can't be educated unless you know what you're doing. So uh, you have to figure out what's happening within their documentation efforts as well. Well, Adam, I wanted to thank you very much today for your insight and expertise. It's been a great conversation. Uh, Remember that you can go to nschbc.org. Uh, do the find the consultant and uh, that gives you first or last name. It's Adam Middleton that's with us today. And if you need any help or anything with setting up your practice or bringing in an MPP, Adam can help you. Thank you, Terry. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity and all the work you do on behalf of the Society for the Podcast. Thank you. As a reminder to our listeners, the NSCHBC, please go to our website at nschbc.org and register for our second quarter Medicare webinar update to get all of the new rules and regulations that have been published over the last couple of months and a snapshot into the new 2021 ICD-10-CM codes that just posted yesterday. So that's it for us today, everyone. Please join us next, next month, August 10th, when Valora Gurgenius from uh, the Senior Management Consultant from Doctors Management, where we're going to discuss startups and practice startups feasibility, the decision to start your own practice or buy an existing practice or to join a practice in a, maybe a Kaiser-like situation. So join us next month as well. So everyone, make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and thank you for listening to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. 
Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.